In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth. Nor did I, did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words was like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. And fathers, we open up and continue to think through and, and process the amazing prophecies you gave through your servant Daniel. I pray your blessing will be in this place this morning. Father, not because we deserve it, but because it is your nature to bless. It is your character to pour out your love. And so we come seeking your compassion, Lord. And I pray that you will speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So Thanksgiving, four days away, right? Oh, blessed stuffing. Oh, glorious turkey. I want to read to you, this is a little book called The Valley of Vision. Some of you are familiar with this. It is a book of Puritan prayers dating all the way back to the uh, beginning of our country. Um, Men like Spurgeon are quoted in here. Just different prayers for different seasons, different times of the year. And this is a prayer I found called Praise and Thanksgiving. Praise and Thanksgiving. Just listen to this. Thou fairest, greatest, first of all objects, my heart admires, adores, loves thee. For my little vessel is as full as it can be, and I would pour out all that fullness before thee in ceaseless flow, O my God. When I think upon and converse with thee, ten thousand delightful thoughts spring up. Ten thousand sources of pleasure are unsealed. Ten thousand refreshing joys spread over my heart, crowding into every moment of happiness. I bless thee for the soul thou hast created, for adorning it, sanctifying it, though it is fixed in barren soil. For the body thou hast given me, for preserving its strength and vigor, for providing senses to enjoy delights, for the ease and freedom of my limbs, for hands, eyes, ears that do thy bidding, for thy royal bounty providing my daily support, for a full table and overflowing cup, For appetite, taste, sweetness, for social joys of relatives and friends, for ability to serve others, for a heart that feels sorrows and necessities, for a mind to care for my fellow men, for opportunities of spreading happiness around, for loved ones and the joys of heaven, for my own expectation of seeing Thee clearly. I love Thee. 
above the powers of language to express for what Thou art to Thy creatures. Increase my love, O my God, through time and eternity. Amen. But did you catch what he said in the middle of that? All of this thanksgiving for all this bounty and these wonderful things from the Lord. He says, a heart that feels, I thank you for a heart that feels sorrows. A heart that feels sorrows. Thank you for sorrow. Thank you for for mourning. Thank you for heartache. How often do we thank the Lord and praise the Lord for the difficulties of our lives? For the pain that we feel. I remember my first sorrowful Thanksgiving. It was 1983, my freshman year of college. I traveled with my grandma Irene down to South Texas, Corpus Christi. We met up with some extended family there and had a wonderful time of Thanksgiving. But it was my first sorrowful Thanksgiving because it was the first one away from home. The first time I actually spent a Thanksgiving holiday away from my home in Southern California. And to make matters worse, it was away from a girl who had my heart back in Southern California. I married that girl. But I remember that weekend just missing home, wishing I was home. We had a great time, but there was a degree of sorrow there. Ironically, now when I look back on that weekend and think about it, I have a different sorrow. Because my grandma Irene passed away in 1999, and I adored her. She was a sweet, sweet lady. I was thinking about this over the week and thinking how it is so strange that joy and sorrow tends to mix in our lives. That whereas while I was young, I would have moments of joy and then moments of sadness. Now, it's interesting how you can have both taking place at the same time. Now, this may seem a strange way to begin a teaching a week before Thanksgiving, but in this passage before us, we, I believe, see a beautiful secret to Thanksgiving morning. To sorrow in Thanksgiving. To gratitude in grief. Appreciation even in anguish. And I want to talk about it because I believe it goes to how faith is processed and developed and accomplished within us. One of those truisms of Scripture that without the aspect of sorrow, faith doesn't quite develop correctly. That we need mourning to become people of faith. That faith is more about hunger than it is about stuffing. That faith is more about steadfastness than it is going back for seconds. It's more about fasting than feasting. And Jesus said in Matthew 9.15, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Yes, we have the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, but Jesus is not here like He was here with the apostles. It's a different thing in this season. And so in this season, until Jesus would come, until He returns, we mourn and we fast in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have if He was sitting right here with us. If He was in our homes on Thanksgiving morning. If we woke to find Him sitting there waiting for us and fell asleep to the sound of His voice at night. And so we are in those days where the bridegroom is taken away until the bridegroom returns. And Jesus says in those days they will fast. And fasting is something that is applicable to our spiritual lives, to our our growth. To deny the physical body and allow the Spirit time to work on us and in us. 
And Daniel is not fasting, really. When we open up chapter 10, he's not really fasting. He's still eating. It's not a complete fast, but he is fasting against the foods of pleasure. He's denying himself the pleasure foods. He is staying with the pain. He stays with the pain. So different than the world. The world says, take something for the pain. The world says, run away from hardship. Drown the sorrows. God says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, many will be purged and purified and refined. The wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. And if you would be insightful, if you would seek understanding, it's going to come through the process of purging and purification and refinement. A process that involves Morning. Let's look at verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. And there's two interesting things right off the bat. It's the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. The year is 536 B.C. 536 B.C. You might make a note of that in your Bibles. Daniel has now been in Babylon nearly 70 years putting him in his late 80s probably. If he was 17 or 18 years old when he was taken into captivity, which we think he probably was right around there, he'd be 87, 88 years old. He could be as old as into his 90s. But we know that Daniel is an old man. You may recall Daniel's Babylonian pagan name was Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel, the the god of Babylon. Why does he mention it here? Why is it here? I mean, we haven't heard this since back in chapter 5 when the buffoon king Belshazzar used it. Belteshazzar, the Babylonian name, that pagan name. Why would it be mentioned here? I thought that was interesting. It just gets stuck here. And I think it's because the Holy Spirit is speaking to the critics. I think that he's saying this is no pseudo-Daniel. This is no late-date historian commandeering Daniel's name for credibility. This is the Daniel who was in the Babylon who was named Belteshazzar by Nebuchadnezzar. This is one and the same Daniel we're talking about. And once again, we have a moment in the Scriptures that if the critic would pause and look, would recognize... The Daniel is named Belshazzar, and this is the same Daniel of 560, whatever I told you. 530, did I say 36? 36. 536. That's when this was written. And we have two confirming notes of that right here before we even get halfway through the first verse. It's the third year of Cyrus. Well, we know that's 536. And Daniel's name was Belshazzar, which was the name of Daniel given in Babylon. So along with those, those two connections give us a time and date stamp on this prophecy before us, written and received, 536 B.C. The verse continues, And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Now you need to understand something. If you're reading the King James Version, it reads a little differently there. Or the New King James Version perhaps tracks with the King James as well. What the King James says is not a time of great conflict. A message true and one of great conflict. What the King James says is the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. Well, that's somewhat different, isn't it? 
The time of great conflict or the appointed time was long. What's the deal there? Well, the Hebrew phrase is Sabah Gadol. And Sabah Gadol, Gadol means great in magnitude or great in length or great in intensity. Sabah means that which goes forth or a mighty host. And what's interesting here is really I think the NASB and the King James got it right together. They ought to be read together. Because the Hebrew implication here, I'll let John Walvard speak it to us. Walvard said, the implication is that the period in view is long and strenuous, one involving great conflict and trouble for the people of God. In other words, it is a time of great conflict and the time is long. This is a long period of time that will be one of conflict and difficulty for the people of Israel. Do you understand? So it's both. If you're reading in the King James, it's right. If you're reading in the NASB, it's right. If you're reading something else, probably wrong. So those two have it down, I think, pretty good. Jesus confirms this comment about a long-standing time of great conflict for the people of Israel. He says in Matthew 24, verse 6, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Those things must take place. That is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Of course, unless the five plus one decide to uh, make a treaty with Iran, which is the stupidest thing they've done in recent years. Did you read about that? The treaty was reached. So now Iran has six more months to continue their nuclear program while the West looks the other way. Of course, that's my opinion, but it's right. He says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now this is the last vision of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10 begins the last vision. It will run through the end of the book now. Chapter 10 really is the introduction to that vision. You get to chapter 11 and man, it just blows open the panorama of this amazing vision reaching right up to the very end of this age. As Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars. Three full chapters in Daniel given to one vision, the biggest in the book, and the conflicts in this vision are both earthly and heavenly. And it's overwhelming. No wonder Daniel was in mourning. But wait a minute. Daniel's mournful state is not brought on by this vision. Daniel's mournful state preceded the vision. He mourned for three weeks before the angel shows up. Before the vision is given. Look at verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, for I did not use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. I read that and I said, that is our Thanksgiving teaching right there. (laughs) For those of you who are going to stuff yourselves on Thursday, you might want to take the advice of verse 3 on Friday. No tasty food, no meat or wine entering your mouth. And you can use ointment. We all would appreciate that. But um, maybe the fast needs to begin. Daniel had been fasting here for three weeks. Depressed. Despondent. Using his own word, in mourning. This was not the result of the vision. This preceded the vision. It was Solomon who wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow 
is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may yet be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Daniel was in the house of mourning. Daniel was bummed out. Daniel was despairing on his couch. He wasn't the first, nor would he be the last. And I'm talking about faithful, godly believers, followers of Jesus. And you might think it odd. Is that a characteristic of a follower of Jesus? To go to the house of mourning? To be bummed out? To be depressed? Doesn't that seem contraindicated? You follow Jesus, isn't life supposed to be happy, slappy, and easy, and good to go? Well, think about all the mourners in the Bible. Job jumps immediately to mind. Moses could be melancholy. Elijah wanted to be euthanized. (laughs) David was depressed. Jeremiah lamented. Ezra had his angst. And here we have Daniel despondent. You go throughout Scripture and it seems that every major follower of the Lord hits a low point. Every one of them becomes depressed or despondent or goes into the house of mourning at some point. Daniel is in the house of mourning and listen to this, God let him be. The Lord allowed him to sit there in that place of depression and despair. I don't mean to be impertinent here at all, but in the previous chapter, Daniel prayed and got an angelic response in three minutes or less which we talked about Wednesday night. The prayer takes about three minutes. And we're told in Daniel 9.21, While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness at about the time of the evening offering. And we realized Wednesday night, it's only three minutes from heaven to earth. (laughs) Via transportation with Gabriel. Daniel is still praying, opens his eyes, and Gabriel's there. Immediate response, immediate answer. Now Daniel's on his couch praying for three weeks, despairing, depressed, crying out to the Lord. Nothing. No response. Three weeks. Why the delay? Well, part of the answer has to do with a spiritual battle that was taking place, but we're going to have to wait until next week to talk about that. But I think there was more going on. I think there was more going on. James, I love that that bummed you out. (laughs) He's going to go ahead and read it. I'm checking it out. You preach on, Rick. I'm just going to go ahead. I don't care. (laughs) Impertinent. (laughs) You know what? I have always taught this delay. The three-week delay was because of the spiritual battle. And I think in the spiritual realm, it was. But I think there's more going on. Let me ask you this. Is there any battle that can delay the Lord if He wants to come through? No. Come on. Is there anything that can stop Jesus from moving? He decides it's time to go. He's going to go, right? And so I realize there's more happening here. Daniel is still in painful process. And I think the Lord knew that. And I think the Lord allowed the delay because of it. What do you mean? I mean, the faithful servant here is almost 90 years old and God is still sanctifying his heart. God is still calling him to a place where he has to cry out in faith, where he has to wait for it. Wait, Rick, you're saying I could be in my late 80s and still have to wait for it? Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Because he doesn't stop processing us until we're home. Then the process is over. Then we kick back, take off our shoes, and enjoy that whole tryptophan thing we were talking about before. 
then we just worship the Lord and then all the struggle is over. Until then, it doesn't matter what your age is, young or old, you are in process. And Daniel, I believe, as marvelous a man as this was, is, as blessed a seer, he was in process. And Jesus had this to say, Matthew 5.4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. The Greek word mourn is pentheo. Pentheo, those who mourn. The Hebrew parallel is abal. In fact, abal is the word that is used here. Daniel, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. I had been abal. It means to grieve or to lament. Or, it also means dry, parched, a state of drought. Three weeks of depression. Three weeks of drought for Daniel. And everybody gets there. Everybody hits those dry seasons of grief, of lamentation, of woundedness, of sorrow. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters in Christ, just because you're dry doesn't, because you're, doesn't mean you're faithless. Just because you're dry doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. You may be in a season of drought because the Lord wants you to walk through the wilderness and, and trust Him for the next drink of water, for the next outpouring of His Spirit. It may have nothing to do with you whatsoever other than that, that the Lord is processing you. That He is still working in me. James, he had the audacity to write in James 1 verse 2, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. How dare he? (laughs) Consider it joy. What, am I heartache? And he says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And like it or not, he's absolutely right. That our mourning and our sorrow is of use to the Lord to, to, to produce in us something better. Something more faithful. Mourning is a unique surgical tool when applied to the heart of a godly person. And the godly is someone who is simply willing to go under the knife of God's perfect healing process if the Father, the great physician, deems it necessary. If I have to be in this season of grief, Lord Jesus, then at least stay with me. Work on me. And carve away those aspects of my life that need to be taken out. Consider Daniel in the house of mourning. That's what I want to do this morning. Why is he so dry? Why is he so depressed? Three possibilities here that I see. Possibility number one is he may be depressed because of a paltry return. A paltry return. Turning your Bibles back to the book of Ezra, which, curiously, Ezra happens right around this time. And yet we studied it a long time ago. Ezra chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me just remind you that we know that Daniel chapter 10 begins in the third year of Cyrus. The third year of Cyrus. Right? Look at Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, 
May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now this doesn't mean Cyrus was immediately a believer. But Cyrus, as a conqueror, did what many conquerors did in those days, and that is when you conquered a people, you allowed them to keep their gods and their temples just in case their god happens to be God. You got yourself covered in all the cultures. And so he says to the people, the Jewish people, the exiles, go back and build your temple. Go take care of that. That was the first year of Cyrus. This is now the third year of Cyrus. Right? Two years. At the time of Daniel's mourning, two years had elapsed since Cyrus decreed the Jewish right of return. And there are those who believe that that Daniel perhaps was depressed because so many of his people settled for life in Babylon. And that bummed him out. So few actually went back. A paltry return. Daniel's recognizing this. He's looking around. He's going, guys, we have the decree. Cyrus, my boss, said go. Now Daniel doesn't go. Daniel would never go. But Daniel's also in his late 80s and probably figures he can serve God best right where he is. And Daniel was a servant of the Lord. But there were far too many who weren't staying in Babylon to serve the Lord. They were staying in Babylon to serve themselves. They settled. I think few things grieve a godly person more than seeing people settle for this life. They know the best that this world has to offer is paltry compared to the glories to come. Have you felt that? i got to tell you, and I'm not claiming to be a godly man, I'm just saying I see from time to time people chase after things that are so worldly. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll see, go after a worldly thing and I'll just go, really? And it, it hurts. And then Cheryl will remind me of my own chasing after a worldly thing and, and it hurts. <laughs> A paltry return. People staying in Babylon. That is one of the remarkable things about the whole Jewish exile is after 70 years in Babylon, they said, you know, it's pretty good. This is pretty good. It's the capital of the world. There's riches, there's wealth, there's idolatry, but there's all this other good stuff here. And if we go back there, we're going to have to fight for it and struggle and mourn and that's no good. Let's stay here. Let's be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension or all comparison. While we look not at things which are seen, but things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now you say that to a non-believer and they might say, Why do you Christians want to make people like you? And the truth is we don't. Hear me clearly, hear me loudly. You don't want to be like me. I'm the kind of guy who draws mustaches on his mother's magazines. <laughs> you were wondering if I was going to bring that up, weren't you? Yeah, I looked down on the table. The mail had come. It's sitting on the kitchen table last week. I looked down there, and there's a picture of Michelle Obama. <laughs> and, and I thought, 
I wonder what she would look like with a mustache. I'm not, kids, don't try this at home. So I drew a mustache. And it begged for a goatee. So I drew that. And a little, yeah. and, and, but then the magazine right under that, there was Emma Thompson. She needed a pirate patch. Boy, did I get in trouble for that one. I'll tell you what, I got sent to my room, which is where I wanted to be in the first place. But anyway, we don't want people to be like us. We just know this is not as good as it gets. We know that this life is not why we're here. And so when we proclaim Jesus to a lost and dying world, we're saying don't settle for what you have here. That this is as good as it will ever get if you don't have Jesus. If you have Jesus, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. Hebrews 11.13, talking about all those people of faith, says they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So Daniel may very well have been in a place of mourning, in a house of mourning over his people. And he's looking at all those who settled and so few who actually returned. Do you lack a vision of Christ's return? Do you know why we talk about the second coming of Jesus so much here in the fellowship? It's because we need that vision. We've got to be looking to His coming. We need to have our eyes open to the reality, not just the possibility, the reality of what is coming. We need to be those who are mourning the absence of the bridegroom and hoping in His return. That's a major part of the purifying process. John said in 1 John 3, verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Your hope is fixed on the coming of Jesus. Don't settle for life here. So Daniel's mourning. But there are a couple of other possibilities for the prophet's sorrow. A second one we could call a problematic rebuild. A problematic rebuild. Because from the beginning of the exile's attempt to rebuild the temple, they faced intense external pressure. It was not an easy task before them. Ezra chapter 4 verse 4 says the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia, which is the other Darius, the the one who comes after Cyrus. So all this problem and this pressure from the outside... Even into the reign of Artaxerxes, by the way, we know that this continued. This external attack to try and keep the people of Judah from rebuilding the temple. Ezra chapter 4 goes on to describe a letter-writing campaign that took place in the days of Artaxerxes. The letter-writing campaign resulted in a cease and desist notice that was sent to the people of Israel. There in Judah, in Jerusalem, cease and desist all building, stop. Because Artaxerxes is getting all these letters of complaint. So as the king, he says, stop all building, cease and desist. By the way, I can say from personal experience, cease and desist never works against God. As it turns out, rock does beat paper. Think about that one. But even with the Lord's intervention, the second temple still took 21 years to build. 
21 years. How, long, how far into our building project are we? Glenn? About six months. About six months. <laughs> I wish we'd get over. I wish it'd just be done and we can move in. 21 years. That's a long haul. And it wasn't just because of external pressure, gang. It was also because of internal passivity. Internal passivity. Turn over to the right of Daniel to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1. Prophet Haggai comes along at the exact same time that Ezra's on the scene and Daniel's still back there in Babylon. And the Lord speaks through Haggai. He speaks through Ezra. He will send Ezra. He wants to stir up the heart of the people because there is this internal passivity. Pressure from the outside. Passivity from the inside. So the temple's not getting built. And the prophet writes, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come. Note that. The time has not come, the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. That's what Cyrus decreed for them to do. Before Darius, Cyrus sent them back to rebuild the temple. That was the point. No, no, it's not time yet. How do you know it's not time? Well, it's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. And all those other people don't want us to do it. Time has not yet come. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Is that what time it is? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. (laughs) Guess what he's saying? Your lives aren't working out so well, are they? Why is that? Because you're passive. Because you're not fulfilling my call on your lives. And so your money's just dribbling away. Your warmth isn't there. Your food isn't enough. Nothing's working for you. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains. Bring wood. Rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Wow, that is the contrast, by the way, of success in this life, of trying to find some meaning here without Jesus. You look for it, it just gets blown away. It's always just out of your grasp. It's galling. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Why? Because they were passive to build the building. What we do for the Lord and His work always yields harvest. It always yields satisfaction. It always yields satiation and warmth. And yes, prosperity. Just not prosperity as the world sees it. Anything we do for the Lord yields a prosperity that is far better. As Jesus said in Matthew 6.20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. The early exiles lacked the conviction to finish what they'd started. So, God sent men like Ezra and Haggai to stir it up. Get to work, he says. I can't help myself. We have a project to finish, don't we? We have a project before us. And I want to ask every one of you to ask yourselves this question, because I really don't know the answer to this. It's one of the blessings of being ignorant. I don't know what anybody's given to this project. I don't know what anybody specifically has put into this project with the exception of our uh, building team. What have you done? What has been your part in the process of growing this fellowship? Ask yourself. Take it before the Lord. And if you're not sure, if you're like, ah, boy, I don't know, then maybe ask Him, what is my part? What is my part? What do you want me to do, Lord? How, how am I supposed to be active in this fellowship and in this process? What do you want of me? We have faced big external challenges to our building. We've had the cease and desist notice, right? It wasn't from our desserts, these were from Island County. Same process, same idea. We have faced costly regulations. Uh, and some of you have asked questions about that. Why is it so expensive? We're in the county, we're not in the city, and we are a commercial construction, not a home. And the requirements upon us by the county are ridiculous. I, I, I guess it's just the way it is, you know? And you know what? Honestly, I'm good with all that. But I pray that the Lord protect us from internal passivity. I pray that if, if, if this building takes longer to build because we have certain things, requirements put upon us by the county, fine, whatever, great, we'll do it. We need to spend a hundred grand on a water pump. We'll do it. We got a sprinkler, a steel building. I still don't get that one. It's steel. Anyway, we'll do it. We'll do what we have to do. No problem. External pressure, bring it on. Internal pressure, may the Lord protect against it. And may we not be passive. You all responded so marvelously. I, I was really excited. When I said 300 for Operation Christmas Child, my hope was just to throw a challenge out there. 285 is awesome. It's so exciting. We had we we brought in last year 109. So in one year, this fellowship more almost tripled what we brought last year. Praise the Lord. Good job, by the way. I, I know we don't often like to pat ourselves on the back. Oh, the Lord maybe did. No, you went to Target. You know that's. Good job. We should feel good about that. Here's the new challenge. Not 300 boxes. The new challenge is, let's finish what we started, and I'm going to put it out there by Resurrection Sunday, which is April 20th, 2014. Some of you say, oh, I thought we were going to be in for the Christmas Eve service. No, this barn is lovely. We're going to be here for Christmas Eve. <laughs> but let's be in on April 20th. The finances, if the finances are there, the building will get done. That's going to be the issue. Well, Rick, what about the line of credit? The line of credit was never about finishing the project. The line of credit was about keeping it on pace. was about keeping it moving forward. My concern 
And my prayer is, Lord, give us faith to finish what we started. Faith to finish the project. Wednesday night at our Thanksgiving worship, Glenn, if you'll remind me, um, we'll give you some explanation of some of the costs that show why, why it's as expensive as it is. We don't want to hide anything. We have, there hasn't been failure on the part of the finance team to figure this out or to plan ahead. There are just some extreme costs. We'll share that with you on Wednesday night as, as we pray and thank the Lord for His blessings. But Paul said to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, Just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin again a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do this. To do what? To save up money to send to Jerusalem. To set aside a... a, a, It was an offering campaign, a finance campaign. Let's put together and let's do this. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8.11, Now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, there may be also the completion of it by your ability. In the words of that famous uh, 21st century theologian, Larry the Cable Guy, (laughs) get her done. Let's get her done. There's one more reason I think Daniel may have mourned. A paltry return of his people, people settling in the land, a problematic rebuild. These two things are huge, probably weighed very heavy on Daniel's heart, but I think there's a possible third. And this is maybe even more personal. A postponed redemption. A postponed redemption. Think back to verse 1. In the NASB, the message was true and one of great conflict. In the King James, the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. Daniel, in receiving his prophecies of the kingdoms, in thinking through all that was coming, all that was to happen for his people, even what we saw, the 490 years, the, the 70 Shabuah we talked about on Wednesday night, this long period of difficulty and hardship for his people. And Daniel may have been worn out simply by that. A postponed redemption. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I think that Daniel's sorrow was occasioned partly by the repetition of those words to him, quote, the vision is true, but the time appointed is long. Proverbs 13.12, you know the verse, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Daniel may very well have been heart sick because his hope was deferred. Because in his position in history, all of his visions were long-ranging. Even the glorious kingdom for his people was somewhere in the murky distant future. Now, I said a few minutes ago that longing for Jesus has a purifying impact on us, and it it truly does. What I haven't, I don't think, before ever addressed is the issue of the pain of waiting for Jesus to come. And Maureen, I've seen it and we've talked about it. I've seen it in your heart. The pain of the wait. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Maureen's heart hasn't been full of faith for the coming of Jesus. But we've had these conversations and it's really impacted me over the years. I'm sorry to embarrass you, point you out. Don't look at Maureen. Look at me. (laughs) The pain of waiting. We talk a lot about the joy of looking to the coming of Jesus. I can't wait for Him to be here. And how will you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? He's coming. He's going to be here. And then 
The night gets long. And the days drag on. And it's 2013, almost 14. I figured 2007 was about as far as we would go. Sometimes the wait is painful. Waiting for the coming of Jesus, and I'm just being honest here, can cause mourning. Can bring a sorrow. I thought you said mourning was part of the process, Rick, and it is. But I also said mourning His absence while hoping for His return. But even hoping for His return can sometimes bring a a sorrow. Now the reality is in all of this, we're not climbing mountains and setting up camp. Waiting for Jesus, you know? We're not holding up in barns or buildings. Just waiting for Jesus. The thing is, if we remain in the house of mourning while awaiting the fulfillment of His return, we will just end up heart sick. And there are many days in my life where I know if I just sit there and ruminate about Jesus coming and how long it's been and how long it's going to be, I can start to get sorrowful. I can, I can, I need five minutes on Fox News or, or CNN or any of the news sources and I just start to get bumped. I'm like, Jesus, why have you not come yet? I was thinking about my grandma who passed away in 1999 and I was so thankful she never saw 9-11. So thankful she hasn't seen the last decade of this world. Thankful she was spared that. But don't stay in that place. Daniel was there. Daniel was seeing a long, long time span ahead. Difficult times. A people who were settling. A people who were not completing the project. And he's depressed and he's mourning. But hope, hope is active. Though we may at times mourn, Jesus said, Matthew 24, 45, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And in Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel saw in Jeremiah that the 70 year exile was almost over, you remember Wednesday night, Bible students, what happened? He prayed for it to end without delay. He didn't pray for His people to be prepared when that last minute of the 70 years was done. He said, Lord, bring it now. Why do we have to wait? We're close. Can it be just today? Daniel chapter 9, verse 19, He says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for Your own sake. O my God, do not delay. Because Your city and Your people are called by Your name. Now listen, He prayed that in 539 B.C. In 538 B.C., Cyrus decreed the release and the return of the Jews. One year later. Which, if you measure it, as we talked about Wednesday, that is three years ahead of the earliest possible date for 70 years to be up. Isn't that great? Daniel prayed that God would not delay, and God carved three years off of the 70-year penalty if His people would just have faith. If His people would just believe, accept the decree of Cyrus, and head back to the land, they could be back three years early. And I believe Daniel's penitent, passionate prayer moved up God's timetable. I think because Daniel prayed what he did, and perhaps other men like Ezra prayed what they were praying. Zerubbabel, Joshua, were praying, Lord, send us back. That the Lord said, 67 years is enough. Go on back. 
See, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. You get that? He is waiting to pour out compassion. He's waiting to give grace. He is not the reason we're still here. You realize that? It's those who have not believed, they're the reason that we're still here. And so we can do one of two things. We can grumble at them, or we can take the Gospel to them. The Lord longs to be gracious. For the Lord is a God of justice. Isaiah 30.18 How blessed are those who long for Him. And I asked Wednesday night, can we do what Daniel did? Can, Can we prevail upon the Lord in prayer to move up His promises? I think we can. I think we even have biblical precedent. Not only with Daniel, we have a biblical command. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.12 that we are to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Hasten the coming. My friends, the appointed time is not long. Now, let me bring this all together here because the quality of mourning, the quality of mourning and hoping together, it's one of the more surprising characteristics of a follower of of Jesus, of a man or a woman of God, thanksgiving in mourning, joy in sorrow, faith even in trial. And as we said, the Bible is littered with examples of godly mourners like Daniel. But one stands out above all the rest. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And three weeks into Daniel's despondency, when Daniel is at the low point of his sorrow, guess who shows up? Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Ufads. His body was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult." And scholars and commentators disagree on this. Some say this is an angel. And I would say to you, there is no angel in all of Scripture described like this. I absolutely am convinced this is Jesus Christ. And that Daniel sees Jesus. Partially because it it parallels the experiences of both Ezekiel and John. Read on. Verse 7 says, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Well, that's kind of like Paul on the road to Damascus. He saw, no one else did. They heard, they didn't see. And he says, Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves, chickens. So, I I was left alone and saw this great vision, and yet no strength was in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 1.28, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of His surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice speaking. So Ezekiel face plants. Daniel says all the color drained out of his face, and he had a death mask. John says in Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And just as John and Ezekiel hit the deck, flatlining, I believe, before Jesus, so Daniel's face turns a deathly pallor. Well, shouldn't surprise us. God told Moses in Exodus 33.20, You cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. Which is why we have to die to ourselves. We die to ourselves. And we can see Jesus. But the clincher for me here is the comparison to the revelation of Jesus to John. May I just read this to you again? Revelation 1, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. You read that, you go back, and you read what Daniel writes, how he describes the vision in Daniel chapter 10, and I'm telling you, man, it is Jesus. But understand this. This is now the second vision that Daniel has of Jesus Christ. Back in Daniel chapter 7, a couple chapters earlier, he sees Jesus. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now I point out these two visions. Daniel heard the voice of Christ one other time in Daniel chapter 8. But he sees Christ twice. Daniel chapter 7, one like a son of man. Daniel chapter 10, Christ in glory. And I think that's important because Daniel has seen Jesus both ways. You see, to know joy even in the morning, we need to see the Son of God in His power, His ability to carry us through whatever the situation might be. We also need to see the Son of Man and know His compassion. Recognize that He understands. Understand that this One who is God in all His glory, shining like the sun, was also man with dusty feet. Mourning just like me. Sorrowful just like you. Jesus knows what it means to mourn. And so we, like Daniel, are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and noted perfecter of our faith. Verse 9 tells us, I heard the sound of His words, and as soon as I heard the sound of His words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. And I read that verse and I wonder, was Daniel so overcome by exhaustion, overwhelmed by the vision that he simply passed out, went cold? Or did he settle into a deep peace? 
Because it's interesting to me in verse 8, we see that he has no strength. His face turns to a deathly pallor when he sees the vision. He sees Christ in all His glory and it's too much for him. And then he hears the voice of Jesus and falls into a deep sleep. I saw Him and all my strength left me. I heard Him and peace came. A deep sleep. I wonder if it's the first sleep Daniel had had in three weeks. I don't know. What I do know is Jesus says to you, says to me, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He is, he is our thanksgiving, even in mourning. Amen? Let's bow. Father, we bow before You. Some in joy, some in anticipation of time with friends, family at the end of the week, holidays ahead. Some, Lord, stressed out beyond belief (laughs) for the same reasons. And others in sorrow. And Father, again, whatever the circumstances of our life, I'm so thankful that You, through Jesus Christ, meet us where we are. And that You use those circumstances to refine and to purge and to purify our faith, just as You did with Daniel. And Lord, we count it all joy, even when You call us into the valley of the shadow of death. For there we will fear no evil. You're with us. Lord, I pray as we seek Your face throughout this week and we express prayers of gratitude and thankfulness that You will even give us grace to be thankful for sorrow. Bless Your name, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.